Good to see each one of you back in the Lord's house tonight. I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me, please. Let's turn to page 52. Page number 52, the lily of the valley. We'll sing all three verses as we begin together tonight. Sing it out on the first. I have found a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. The lily of the valley, in him alone I see. All I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. In sorrow he's my comfort, in trouble he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. He all my griefs have taken and all my sorrows mourn. In temptation he's my strong and mighty tower. I have all for him forsaken and all my idols torn. From my heart and now he keeps me by his power. Though all the world forsake me and Satan tend me sore, through Jesus I shall safely reach the goal. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. He will never, never leave me, nor yet forsake me here, while I live by faith and do his blessed will. Oh, wall of fire about me, I've nothing now to fear. With his manna he my hungry soul shall fill. Then sweeping up to glory, I'll see his blessed face, where rivers of delight shall ever roll. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. Amen. Great start tonight. That's Brother C.J. Reeves. Would you open us in prayer tonight, please, sir? Amen. You may be seated tonight. Just have a few uh, reminders for you as we um, begin together tonight. First of all, keep your pastor and his, and his wife in prayer as they're going to be traveling. Um, they are uh, leaving out of here in about an hour and a half or so, headed for Phoenix, Arizona uh, for the uh, fellowship meeting down there. So just keep them in, prayers this, in your prayers this week. They'll be coming back on Thursday evening. Um, but we do have a few uh, reminders for you as we uh, go throughout tonight and then tomorrow. wanted to just um, remind you tonight that uh, there is a restaurant takeover after church tonight for the, the teenagers. So they're going to be headed over to Whataburger after church tonight. They're going to be taking the coach over there. So if your kids are riding uh, over on the coach bus and they're riding back on the coach bus, they'll be back here between 9.15 and 9.30, all right? So you can be here to pick them up about that time. Um, also concerning the youth, uh, we have our youth rally coming up March the 22nd, all right? And Brother Sam Davison's going to be here preaching that night, and you don't want to miss that, all right? So I know it's, I know it's for the teenagers uh, primarily, but you'll want to come and hear Brother Sam Davison preach and be here that night. And I know Glory Bound's going to be with us singing, and they're going to be here singing uh, for us on, on Friday night and on Sunday. So we'll have them here on Sunday, so looking forward uh, to that. So keep that on, uh, mark that on your calendar on March the 22nd. And in the back, on the left-hand side, in the outer for you as you, as you leave uh, tonight, there are sign-up sheets out there, all right? So if you can help uh, the, the, for the youth rally by bringing uh, the soda or water or cookies or whatever chips or whatever it is that's on those sign-up sheets, if you can help us, we'll probably, I mean, I guess expecting a little over 300 here again is usually about what we have, and so uh, this place will be packed out. It's going to be a great, exciting night, but we need all the help we can get to get all the food here, all right? And uh, we still have Chick-fil-A. The Lord's Chicken will be here, all right? So we're excited about that, and uh, it's going to be a, a great night. And then, of course, afterward, uh, they'll be headed over to the bowling alley afterward that night. So just going to be a great time in the Lord. So make sure that if you're able to be here, that you are. And also back there on the table, there's still some cards that you can hand out 
um, advertising for the youth rally, all right? So if you uh, maybe have some, somebody down the street or somebody at work, you know, has teenagers or, or maybe they like to come, uh, the gospel is going to be preached, I can promise you that. And so uh, that would be a good opportunity to get them here, and, and uh, Lord willing, we'll see some saved through our youth rally, amen? So looking forward to that. And then I have a special announcement. There's no school tomorrow, so all the kids said... I knew that they'd be excited about that. Okay, so we're out of school tomorrow in honor of President's Day. And uh, so make sure you don't bring your children here. Or they'll be here alone all by themselves all day because I will not be here tomorrow. All right? So that's, that's all the announcements I have for you tonight. Let's turn to page 419. Page number 419. I'll let you remain seated for this song, The Solid Rock. We'll sing all four verses tonight. Page number 419. Lift it up on the first. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath is covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. If we are trying to stand on anything else, we will fall. But standing on the solid rock, we can be sure that we have everything that we need. Amen. Master Brother Micah Quinlan, if you would pray for the offering tonight, please. Amen. Let's turn to page number 298 as we stand for one last song tonight. Page 298, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Page 298, let's sing all three verses together. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day, day I will never forget. After I wandered in darkness away, Jesus my Savior I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. At the need of my heart Shadows dispelling with joy I am telling He made all the darkness depart Heaven came down and glory filled my soul When at the cross the Savior made me whole My sins were washed away And my night was turned to came down and glory filled my soul. 
spirit with life from above into God's family divine. Justified fully through Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine. And the transaction so quickly was made. When as a sinner I came, took of the offer of grace he did proffer. He saved me for praise his dear name. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made me whole, my sins were washed away and my night was turned to surely endure after the passing of time I have a future in heaven for sure there in those mansions sublime and it's because of that wonderful day when at the cross I believe rich is eternal and blessing supernal from his precious hand I receive heaven came down and glory filled my soul for that day. Say amen tonight. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Grace singing this evening. Just before Brother Tim Quinlan comes to preach, we're going to have a special from his wife tonight. Miss Anna Quinlan's going to come sing tonight. So here 
take Though you've heard this prayer a thousand other days Make this moment more than just empty words I pray, let it be a start To know the fullness of my Father's heart Take my life and let it be As probably most of you have guessed, we're going to be back in Second Peter again this evening. I'm uh, uh, so thankful we're able to go through this, and, and of course now that um, preaching more often on Sunday nights, we're able to kind of get through it a little more quickly and, and not forget uh, quite so much as we're going uh, from passage to passage. But we'll be in Second Peter in chapter 1, and if you remember, we saw last time that God has given us all that we need to live righteously in this life. That, uh, that God has provided all the access to His Spirit. In fact, as Pastor often says, you got all of the Holy Spirit you will ever get at salvation. And that is more than enough. It's not about uh, getting more of Him. It's about giving Him more of us. So if you would please stand, we're going to look there in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to go back to verse 3. Of course, we dealt with verses 3 and 4 last week. But we're going to go back there in verse 3. It says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity." For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we saw how that God has given us all that we need to live righteously in this world. We saw that the salvation event, if you will, that took place in our lives, another term we could use is justification, starts another process called sanctification. And that process should continue throughout your entire life from the moment you're saved. And the ultimate goal being that you would be transformed into the image of Christ. And I think that's what we're going to see this evening in verses 5 through 7 there. The outworking of the process of sanctification in our lives has these elements to it. So let's pray. Lord. I ask that you be with the message this evening. Pray your word would touch hearts. I ask that the Holy Spirit would show up and would work. And above all, you would be lifted up and glorified in what goes on this evening. And I pray that above all, um, this church could be a light to this city to show them the truth of the gospel. And I ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. So God has already provided all that we need to live godly in this world. And what we've seen before, in fact, I was able to, uh, to talk to the teens a little bit about this this morning, is that really just righteousness, living godly, is simply living in conformity to God's will. And of course, the, the, uh, the will of God for every person is that they would trust in Jesus as their Savior. That's the, that is the beginning of the will of God. 
And He's provided all that we already, or already provided all that we need to live that way. We saw in verse 4 that we, if we've trusted in Christ, then we are now partakers of the divine nature. That is, we needed a new nature. We could go back to Galatians chapter 5, surely, and see uh, the, the war between the flesh and the spirit and the new man and the old man and all of that. We needed a new nature because our old nature was corrupt. Because it was corrupted by sin. We needed a new nature that could emulate the righteousness of God. Well, that took place at our, our salvation. Because we can't in and of ourselves, uh, be as righteous as God. We can't have the righteousness that is required to have a right relationship with God. But we saw at the very beginning in verses 1 and 2 that He provided His righteousness for us. Which started this process called sanctification. In other words, the Holy Spirit began to work in us the moment we trusted Christ and the goal is to transform us into His image. And that process is ongoing. Just like a parent doesn't stop leading and disciplining the child they love, so God will not stop the process of sanctification in our lives. No matter how much we buck against it. Uh, no matter how much you, you've heard the term backsliding. No matter how much we say, I don't want this. And even those who, would, who have truly trusted in Christ and have gone back and say, no, I love the world too much. I want to go back to that. God is still trying to work in them. And probably most of us have known people over the years who have fled from Christ, who've run away from God, and years later the, the uh, Lord gets a hold of their hearts and brings them back into church and they get right with Him and they begin serving Him. Because the process of sanctification never stopped. And even those who quench the Holy Spirit, who fight against God the rest of their lives, probably will wind up with very bitter, sad lives. And even if they stand before God justified one day, even, even in, in, in the light of everything they did to fight against God, they will still, if they've trusted in Christ, be conformed to His image at that day. So one day in eternity, you will be conformed to His image. How much of that happens on this earth varies. You've seen the commercial. Little, little brackets at the end of the commercial. Results may vary. It's on you to submit to that process. God has given you what you need to live righteously he will always make a way of escape from temptation. We don't need to go preach that message. But you are responsible to submit to it. So, which brings us to verses 5 through 7. The sanctification process starts with faith and culminates in love. Now, this, uh, these few verses here are, are what's often known as a virtue list. Uh, it's rather common in Greek writings of that era, of course, with the philosophers and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, they lifted up virtues like goodness and patience and temperance and all that kind of thing. Uh, and this isn't even the only list uh, in the New Testament. Um, probably most of us would know the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, in Romans 5, Paul speaks of tribulation, working patience, and patience, experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, that kind of list. And these aren't the only examples. We could go to James chapter 1 or Philippians chapter 4. But before we get into this list, we need to look at the first phrase of verse 5. It says, and beside this, giving all diligence. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, verses 3 through 4 are the foundation for this list. That has to take place for this list, these virtues, if you will, to begin working out in the life of the Christian. Or we could say it like this. This list is the natural outworking of the process of sanctification in the life of the believer. So because you now partake of the divine nature, that is, you've gotten a new nature from God, and because you are now able to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, your life should start looking like verses 5 through 7. And you will be held responsible for what follows. 
Remember, the Holy Spirit wants to, wants to work out sanctification in you, but it is up to you to submit to that process. Sanctification requires effort on your part. Now, don't get this confused with this uh, legalistic idea of working for your salvation or, or well, I have to, to uh, uh, keep doing good works and good works and good works and good works and, and uh, what I do is, you know, God will be mad at me and all that kind of stuff. Though certainly God requires things of us and God requires us to live righteously and to live in conformity to His will. But this list here, all of this uh, that's going on, uh, requires effort on your part, not through your own power, through the power that He's already given you access to. That verb translated giving all diligence is a rare Greek or rare verb used in Greek literature. And in fact, this is the only place that it's used in the New Testament. It has to do with making every possible effort, doing everything you can to make it happen. You do not have a passive role in sanctification. You must be diligent to make this list part of your daily life. If you're at all familiar with classical literature, you've probably heard of the four cardinal virtues. Prudence, justice, fortitude, that would be courage, and temperance. Well, this is that same kind of thought. Again, Peter's using some of this terminology uh, because he's uh, writing against these uh, false teachers who were very much reliant on Greek philosophy and especially Epicureanism. We talked about that a few weeks ago and all that was going on there. So Peter is using some of those terms not to say that Greek philosophy lines up with Scripture, but to say that what they are taking in their philosophy is biblical principles. And so he's using their terminology to show what the biblical principles are. Philosophers like Philo or the apocryphal book Wisdom of Solomon spoke of the cardinal virtues. But the difference between Peter's writings and classical philosophy is that the philosophers made these virtues the foundation of all they did, while Peter recognizes virtue, uh, all that follows of, from that, as coming out of the foundation of faith. It says, beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Faith is the starting point of all virtue. Uh, we don't possibly have the time to go through the Bible and show it, but suffice it to say for tonight, there is no good work, there is no righteousness outside of faith. Okay, All the good a person can ever do is not good at all. Because goodness is uniquely divine. God is only good. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 17, there is none good but one, that is God. Goodness is uniquely God-centered. So what we perceive as good, uh, when someone says, well, I'm a good person and I do good things and good works, not so. Because goodness, something can only be truly good if God is at the center of it. So all the good deeds that we've ever done are still rooted in sin. For a person to claim to be and do good, yet not have faith in Christ, their goodness is empty. It's vain. That goes very much against the work-centered salvation of most religions, even much of Christianity. You can't do enough good because you aren't good. Only God is. So that goodness that comes to you, we'll see that here in a minute, comes from the new nature that you've gotten in Christ. So on faith, we are to add virtue. Now I'm going to warn you, I have an eight-point outline, so we'll see how far this goes. Add, as one man said, is a very colorful Greek term. It certainly has to do with placing one thing onto something else, but more than that, it has to do with expended effort to provide at one's own expense. Once again, we see that the outworking of sanctification in our lives requires effort on our part. This virtue he's talking about it has to do with goodness, okay? Moral excellence. And while the philosophers saw this as the embodiment of the cardinal virtues, we already saw that goodness can only come from God. Therefore, no human being has any kind of goodness, regardless of how others or even ourselves perceive it. 
It has to come from God. This virtue, this goodness can only be found in the life of a human being when that human being is taking part in God's goodness. There is no goodness outside of salvation. But when you are saved, then God can begin to work good in and through you. But there's going to be an expense to it. That expense might be in the form of avoiding places you used to go that you can't anymore. Or you shouldn't. It might be in the form of making less money because you won't resort to the deceitful business tactics you used to. It might be in the form of losing your job because you won't partake of the wickedness your boss or your co-workers expect you to. And there's a myriad of other ways we could look at this, but the point is there is an expense to virtue, but the ability and the power to do so are at your fingertips. Next he says add to virtue knowledge. Knowledge, like education? Well, remember, we already talked about this. So should every Christian be continually working toward their next advanced degree? Well, in this context, knowledge has to do with Christ or knowledge of Christ. I want you to look back to verse 2. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So this knowledge Peter expects us to have centers around knowing Christ. It's not about degrees. It's not about education. It's about knowing Him. Well, how do we get to know Him? Well, and a lot of times we look at this and say, well, yeah, knowledge, that has to do with knowing the Scriptures. And so you may have heard it preached before that, that uh, you know, you just need to know your Bible and, and then you'll know Christ. Well, there's an element of it to that. And knowledge of Scripture certainly helps us to get to know Christ. But ultimately, knowing lots of Bible trivia is not going to help you know Christ. This really has to do with your personal relationship with Him. Your walk with Him. That's how you get to know someone, isn't it? There are plenty of people who have a great knowledge of Scripture, but no relationship with Jesus. I think we could put it this way. You are responsible for expending effort on your walk with Christ. That if you, as you go through your life, and you get to a point where you go, man, it's been a week since I've read my Bible or I've spent time in prayer. That's not His fault. It's your fault. You know, I've, I've known through the years plenty of folks who couldn't put together a mechanically sound or a, a, a homiletically sound sermon if their life depended on it. But they sure had a knowledge of Christ. And I can think of people who, even in this church over the years, who had an impact on me that you'd never see them preaching from the pulpit. I was just thinking the other day about Brother Ray. Taught the uh, first through third grade boys for like 40 years. He taught me. He was Batman. You got, you got to a certain age and he'd show you on the back of his watch the little Batman sticker. And uh, when I was about 14 or so, I started going out with him on visitation. We had Wednesday night. Uh, we'd meet here at the church about 6.30 and go on visitation and those of you who knew Brother Ray, he could be one of the most awkward people you've ever met. A shoe salesman, and he'd answer, like people, random strangers would answer the door, and he would immediately guess their shoe size. Like before we even introduced ourselves, and it was, but it was, it was some of the funniest icebreakers. Some, some people just looked, okay, but and then, then when he explained it, you know, usually they get a little chuckle out of it, that kind of thing. He had an impact on me. He had a love for God that into his 80s, he was still showing up to every service, going out on visitation, teaching a Sunday school class. And there's many others. Because they put out the effort to get to know him. I've also known some preachers who could, who could put together a message like no other. They knew homiletics and they knew hermeneutics inside and out, but their knowledge of Christ, their relationship with Him was sorely lacking. Now I want you to look at verse 6. It says, and to knowledge, temperance. 
What should naturally come out of a growing relationship with Christ is temperance. Or maybe we could put it this way, self-control. This is one of the four cardinal virtues we already saw. It's most often contrasted with its opposite. And the opposite of self-control would be lust. Temperance is associated primarily with self-control over sexual desire and gluttony. We could give a multitude of examples through the Old Testament where God required self-control primarily in these areas before approaching Him. Uh, we saw it on, on, uh, uh, in Exodus at Mount Sinai and other places as they were getting ready to, uh, the priests in particular, and then with offerings and sacrifices and going to the tabernacle and then the temple, all that kind of stuff. God required some self-control in meeting with Him. A walk, a relationship with Christ, leads the Christian to be able to control himself from a lifestyle ruled by lust. Think about the false teachers Peter was refuting. We'll get there eventually, but we've already mentioned in chapter 2 that they were wicked, wicked people. That they defended their wickedness. That they had no self-control. It says in verse 19 of chapter 2, "...while they promised them liberty..." They themselves are servants of corruption. They would defend their unrighteousness. And Peter says, no, 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 no. They have no self-control. There's nothing for them to defend. Don't fall for their lies. They're not falling. They clearly don't have a relationship with Christ in the way they're living. They gave themselves over to desire. If they wanted it, they got it. Sounds familiar today, doesn't it? When it comes to what we consume, whether that be media, food, physical desires, drugs, self-control is almost viewed as bad. This is what you hear now. Well, you're just being fat phobic or you're body shaming or you're not being inclusive or what someone does in their bedroom is none of their business. Or none of your business. One man put it this way. He said, uh, we live, he said, in a culture in which consumption and self-indulgence are virtually viewed as human rights. If you're a follower of Christ, you don't have the right to consumption and self-indulgence. You are to submit yourself to the authority of Christ, and he expects that his, his children have some self-control. Whether you're consuming it through your mouth, your eyes, your ears, it should be placed under His control, not yours. Temperance, that self-control, that's restraining yourself from going after the things you want or reacting even to situations that are not the way God would have you to react. That leads to patience. This patience, however, is not simply the ability to sit and wait for long periods of time. I've heard my dad say this. I've heard my brother say this, that the army gave them, the, the greatest gift the army gave them, was, gave them was patience. That they could sit for hours or stand for hours waiting on nothing, usually. <laughs> it's not that kind of patience. This really has to do with patience or perseverance in spiritual battle. Ultimately, it's waiting on God. God is not bound by our timetables. He rarely works when we want Him to. We've looked extensively at the life of Abraham and Sarah in Sunday school for the last few months in the teen class. And think about the patience they had to learn. Abram was 75 years old when God called him to leave Ur the Chaldees. They went up to Haran, and then from Haran they ended up coming down into Canaan. At that time, he promised him a son through Sarah, not through any other means, but through Sarah. And then they waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. It said that the man of prayer, George Mueller, prayed for a close friend for over 50 years to be saved, witnessing to him time and time again. And shortly after Mueller's death, his friend did accept Christ. Didn't Paul beseech God three times to take away his thorn in the flesh, but God never did? Whatever the thorn was, he lived with it for the rest of his life. Talk about patiently waiting on God. 
We could give example after example, but the point is, God has given us the power and the ability to patiently wait on Him no matter what circumstance. He is not obligated to work when you want Him to. Rather, you are obligated to wait on Him. He expects you to stand firm waiting on Him in the face of spiritual opposition. Growing out of patience, look there at verse 6. And to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness. Now, this is actually a pretty rare virtue in Christian ethical lists that we find throughout the New Testament. It's only found here and in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. The English term, godliness, is often thought of in terms of right actions, holy living, so-called. Uh, you've probably heard the term, well, cleanliness is next to godliness, and all of that kind of stuff. And for most people, it brings up the picture of someone who is holier than thou. Uh, Someone who, well, I'm a godly person and I'm above all this other kind of stuff. Well, in Greek philosophy, uh, it was a very common term that had to do with one's relationship towards the authorities in one's life. Primarily, their relationship with the gods. But it also could have to do with ancestors, parents, and family. uh, Our attitude towards rulers, judges, keeping your promises or oaths, and even the common good. Your relationship to all of these people and things had to do with godliness. It shows my relationship between me and God, essentially. In Christian terms, it has to do with respect toward God, ultimately, but also toward authorities in your life. Someone who is exercising godliness has respect toward others. One guy said this virtue indicates appropriate respect and reverence toward God and those associated with Him. Something that is decidedly lacking in the teachers opposed by Peter in chapter 2. Once again, this, these virtues are contrasting or completely contradicting these false teachers. Peter says this is how sanctification should be working out in your life. And clearly these false teachers, that's not happening in them. And if that's not happening in them, then they are not sent from God. They don't have the authority to speak on God's behalf. Godliness then smoothly transitions to more horizontally oriented virtues. Mostly from what we've seen up to this point, the first four virtues have primarily to do with our relationship with God. The fifth encompasses our attitude toward both God and man. And the last two primarily have to do with our actions toward those around us. Brotherly kindness is the Greek word Philadelphia. Like many of the other terms in this list, brotherly kindness would not have sounded strange to Greek and Roman ears. It was very common throughout their literature. Their idea of it, though, was strictly familial. This virtue did not extend beyond physical kin. While brotherly love was not unique to Christianity, it was unique in that it it extended to the whole Christian family not just blood relatives. This is an incredibly important distinction. Showing love or particular kindness to someone outside of your family, uh, this would have to do with what they would now be a part of, the family of Christ, and that bonding them together as a family, a community of believers, showing uh, love and kindness towards those that you're considering a new family, but that would be outside of your blood family, was very much looked down upon. Because any other family was considered in competition with your family. Uh, They they thought uh, the prevailing attitude was, well, when you're giving love and kindness towards someone who's not your family and you're treating them like family, you must be taking that from other family. Various early church fathers, uh, other, like Tertullian and others, their writings uh, uh, have, of course, made it down to this day where they talk about how that they were despised by much of Roman and Greek culture, in that they as a church, as a family, or tr- treated them each other as a family in the church who were not blood relatives. These Christians were many times being rejected by their own blood relatives, cut off from those they had known and loved their whole lives, but they found a better family in Christ. They found a community full of love kindness, care, and the world around them could not understand it. 
You hear all the time today, well, blood isn't the only thing that makes people family. Well, that concept was unknown to the world of that day. But for the Christian, that was the logical consequence of salvation. Partaking of the nature of God made them want to show brotherly kindness to this new family they'd found. Lastly, there in verse 7, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Really, the entire list culminates in the end of verse 7. The peak, if you will, of sanctification is love. But not Philadelphia, which is translated brotherly love from time to time, but agape, the highest form of love, the same love that God showed us when He sent His Son to be our punishment for sin. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, don't we know that as the love chapter of the Bible? He talks about faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is a virtue, not an emotion. Christians are not encouraged to feel warmly about each other or even to like one another. They are instructed to act lovingly toward one another. The love chapter of the Bible doesn't describe feelings, emotions. It describes what love does and how it acts. The virtues in this list are the results of sanctification working itself out in your life. Salvation should lead you to virtue, that is goodness. It should lead to knowledge of Christ. In other words, a continuous walk with Christ. It should lead to having self-control over fleshly desires. It should lead to perseverance in the spiritual fight. It should lead to a proper attitude toward God and those around you. It should lead you to care for your fellow Christians. But ultimately, it should lead you to a life of love. Seeing your brother in need and, and uh, acting on it rather than just saying, be ye warmed and filled, what James would say. Giving up something you want to care for others. Self-sacrifice. And if the ultimate fulfillment of love is found in the example of Christ on the cross, and it is, then how should that look in your life? We live in a world full of needs. But the primary need for every human being is Christ. The most loving thing you can do is to show Christ's love to a world in dire need of Him. And there are charitable organizations and churches and all sorts of uh, uh, people and organizations all over the world who are doing all these so-called good works and who are trying to help and trying to feed people and doing all these things that are wonderful, great things, but uh, especially the church to do those things and not share the love of Christ and not share with them their need for a Savior is not showing love at all. Showing love might look like going to the mission field. It for sure looks like witnessing to others when the Holy Spirit prompts. It looks like giving so that missionaries can go. You say you have faith in Christ, where's your love? You say you have a walk with God, in what way are you showing Christ's love to those around you? Love isn't a fuzzy feeling. Love is an action. In what way are you acting out God's love for the lost? Well, I'm doing these good things, or I'm trying to help in this area. Okay, great. In what way are you acting out God's love for the lost? There were plenty of people in the Scriptures. There were lots of widows and orphans and lame people and people possessed with devils in Elijah's day. And the vast majority of them were never cured or healed. And there were many more in Jesus' day that never came that never uh, that Jesus didn't heal but he showed them the ultimate love in that he died for them because all the good stuff we can do for people on this earth is ultimately temporal it's not going to last very long but showing someone the truth of eternity is the best act of love that you could ever give so how are you acting out God's love for people who need to know about God's love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the truth of your word that we can see how sanctification should be working itself out in our lives. Pray, bless us.